This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And you're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. It's a radio program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering questions, questions about the Bible, questions about life, things that are going on in your life. What does the Bible say? I'll do the best that I can to answer those questions. You need only to call us. 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. You can call toll-free if you're outside the local area by calling 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app and send your questions in to us that way. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Um, Just hit the call now button at the top of your screen and you will be connected directly to our studio producer. One more time, 340-9585. It's Wednesday tonight. I'm going to be teaching, um, uh, going over for the second time. Uh, I did it last week at the end of the study. I'm going to do it again today. Uh, Isaiah chapter 9, the first seven verses. I'm going to look at a little different perspective. And I would appreciate your prayer because it's a, a little hard to communicate um, the, the thoughts I'm thinking the Lord is putting on my heart. So uh, that's tonight. Uh, it is one of the great prophecies in the history of the world. Uh, of course, the prophecy of Jesus. It's quoted in Matthew chapter 4. Uh, and every hope that we have is tied up in the fulfillment of this prophecy, which to us is past history. But at the time it was written to Isaiah, it was very far in the future. And, and uh, I think... Um, People will be encouraged tonight. Uh, It also means that uh, since Thursday follows Wednesday, tomorrow Paula will be live in studio with me on the date day edition of the program. We'd love to have your phone calls and questions, ladies, especially for you. Uh, I know Paula will talk about our women's retreat that's coming up a week from tomorrow. Uh, But if you have any questions in the meantime, uh, please feel free to call uh, tomorrow on the show. Let's get to some questions right away. Here is a question, a simple one from Jeff. He says, is God okay with tattoos? Um, Yeah, Jeff, I think God's okay with tattoos. There's uh, no biblical prohibition against it. Now, again, whenever I answer the question, I know what Leviticus 19 says, but the idea of tattoo is communicated in Leviticus 19. It's a completely different concept than anything that we're used to. This is cutting your body in the worship or the observance of the dead, seeking familiar spirits. And, of course, we don't do that. Uh, our tattoo is just sort of body art. And, and, yeah, I think God is okay with tattoos. Now, as Christians, 
We have to be sure that our tattoos honor the Lord. We don't want to put any vile stuff. We don't want to put any self-seeking stuff on us. But uh, what we want to do is honor the Lord with our bodies in all ways. Uh, We have, uh, uh, as every church does these days, a whole bunch of people with tattoos. Uh, We have one lady, uh, one of my pastor's wives, and she can tell her story of her conversion on the tattoos and when when they can be seen when it's not too cold uh she gets asked a lot it gives her lots and lots of opportunities to witness so yes jeff god is okay with tattoos just make sure that they honor the lord Uh, i know i've shared this with you before because i get asked this question probably once a month but uh, uh our oldest son ronnie um uh was heavily tatted um, uh, b- before he got saved, and so a lot of his tattoos are real vile and kind of gross. And um, uh, he 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 got some of them covered over, uh, but um, since he got saved, you know he's really embarrassed by him. And I just told him, I said, Ronnie, you can show people your testimony. This is who I used to be, and God saved me, and this is who I am now. So it's uh, um, something, Jeff, that that I'm sure God is okay with. Pray about it. If God says, okay, do it. As for me, I have a personal policy of not doing anything that hurts, not on purpose to myself. And I tell the church all the time that if it were up to me, I don't think anybody should do anything permanent till their bodies until they're 40 years old. I know that's not very popular. Hope that helps, Jeff. Theo, this is an interesting question. He said, Pastor Ron, how did you end up at Calvary Chapel? And are there other good churches besides Calvary? Uh, Theo, uh, let me answer the last one. There's, there's lots of good churches besides Calvary Chapel. Uh, I hope Calvary Chapels are all good churches, but there's a lot of people teaching the Bible faithfully, a lot of people providing opportunities to use the gifts that God has given you. So there's lots and lots and lots of churches that are really good and pleasing to the Lord besides Calvary Chapel. My journey, Theo, Uh, to Calvary Chapel um, was a little bit different in the sense that uh, I was one of the few people, when I got saved in Southern California, uh, I was one of the few people there who had no idea what Calvary Chapel was or what it meant. Uh, I I wasn't raised in church, so I didn't have any religious baggage. I didn't have any denomination ties. Um, I, I just knew that Christians needed to go to church uh, that wasn't the first church we went to. Uh, after I got saved, the first church I went to actually was a, a prosperity church. Somebody told me God wanted me to be rich, and uh, I used to be, so I wanted to be again. Uh, and it just, just the Lord sort of demonstrated the emptiness of that false teaching. Uh, and I stumbled on Calvary Chapel basically listening to um, a, a radio program. Uh, that they had on 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 the air uh, in that time. Remember, this is 1991. And then I ran into a guy who was a youth pastor at the gym, and uh, he was youth pastor at Calvary Chapel in Ontario, California at the time. And uh, he invited me to come to church. And when the Bible was open and the Word was taught, uh, Theo, that's what grabbed my heart. Uh, I didn't really understand what was going on. But that's what grabbed my heart. And so I sat under the teaching of uh, a friend of mine now. He was uh, uh, my first Calvary Chapel pastor. His name was David Rosales in, in Ontario then, but now it's in, uh, in Chino. He's uh, Calvary Chapel of the Chino Valley. 
And um, uh, I didn't like him at first. His, I thought he was harsh and his attitude sort of judgmental and unloving. Um, but of course, that was just me dealing with some junk in my heart. And yet I couldn't stay away, Theo. I couldn't stay away because I, I, was, I realized that there was difference in somebody just teaching the Bible verse by verse than preaching at me or doing sermons. And um, boy, I was hooked and I, I couldn't stay away. Uh, when I, uh, I, I knew I was called to be a pastor about six months into my walk with the Lord, and I didn't know um, how I was going to do that, um, but one time, um, just spending some time with the Lord, I put on my heart to go to Bible college. Uh, so I started asking around, what Bible college? And uh, I was given uh, the name of a Bible college that, that I know now was, was a false teaching place. And uh, I, I called them and asked for an application. They sent the application. And I remember Theo starting to fill it out, and I couldn't do it. Um, it, it I just, for some reason, I could never get um, to the point where I could finish the application. And uh, I believe one day the Lord spoke to my heart, and he said, I've got a Bible college all picked out for you. Uh, and the doors began to open, and I found myself at Calvary Chapel Bible College, and uh, I knew uh, it was a perfect fit for me. That's where we were going to be. So, um, Theo, that's the short version of how I ended up at Calvary Chapel. Of course, I've been the pastor here now uh, of the church that we planted um, here in San Antonio for uh, almost 24 years. It'll be 24 years in May. And um, uh, I'm just grateful that God directed me to the place where I am. Appreciate it very much, Theo. Thank you. Um, here's a question from Cassie. She says, are deliverance ministries solid? And what about Celebrate Recovery and other addiction programs in churches? Are they solid as well? Um, Cassie, no. You're, most of the deliverance ministry churches are uh, just silliness, charismatic silliness. Again, I want to emphasize we are a charismatic church. We believe in the gifts of the Spirit and operate in them. But we've been delivered once for all. That's very important wording. We have been delivered once for all, Paul writes. And um, that, does, that means necessarily we don't have to be delivered over and over and over again. So they are not based on the Bible. They are not solid. Uh, what they are is ministries that are connected to um, sort of out-of-control charismatic churches. And um, people like it. They like to think that there's a demon that's that's behind their um, bad choices and, and, and sinful lifestyles. And they, they just, okay, deliver me from this and, and uh, I won't sin anymore. And of course, um, they've already been delivered. One of the things, Cassie, I hope you can always remember, and I, everybody in this audience, please to remember this as well. When Jesus delivered us once for all, there's no further need to be delivered ever again. So no deliverance ministries are not uh, solid at all, Cassie. Now, about Celebrate Recovery and other addiction programs, I am not at all a fan of, of uh, addiction or recovery programs in churches. I know Celebrate Recovery, I think it was started at Rick Warren's church, and I know a lot of Christian churches have embraced it. 
Um, but basically what they've done is they've put lipstick on a pig. You know, they've taken AA and they've tried to Christianize it, but they use the same principles, the same 12 steps. The problem is that deliverance from Jesus is a one-step process. And um, when I see addiction-related programs in churches, what I see is churches that lack the faith to believe in the power of God to deliver. I see a lot of churches with the right hearts trying to help God out, trying to do things for people who won't let God do it for them. Of course, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And so here's, um, Cassie, what I would do. I'd just say, let's just see what Jesus has already done. Really believe it and begin walking in it. I think, Cassie, and I, I don't mean to use the word success in a, in a worldly, worldly way, but I think one of the, the, the foundational successes of our church for, for nearly 24 years is that we've never wavered for one minute of one day believing in all of the promises of God. And I don't think God needs any help. What we do when somebody comes to us with an addiction problem um, is we lead them to Jesus. If they will not receive Christ, then they're going to remain addicted. Uh, if if they receive Christ and if they'll believe his promises, if they let the Holy Spirit sort of take over, then what they'll do, Cassie, is they will they will find that Jesus can do what we can't do. With man, this is impossible, Jesus said, but with God, all things are possible. And when you find programs. In, in my study tonight, uh, with all these great and wonderful promises of, of uh, Jesus being brought into the world, uh, it says at the end of it, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Well, that zeal, that zeal for you and for me, is the only way we can do anything. The, the prophet Zechariah said, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And what we do is we say, okay, not by might or by power, because I don't have any, but by your spirit, and I'm going to add this program to it. And that never delivers anybody permanently. Addiction programs, recovery programs, are typically programs that try to steal away the freedom God has given us and replacing it with man-made programs of discipleship and mentoring uh, and it's just not successful. So, Cassie, I hope that answers your question. We would love your live calls and questions. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Uh, here's a question from Fred. He wants to know, how did the lost tribes of Israel get lost and where are they now? Um, Fred, they never were lost kind of a um, strange concept. God knows where everybody is. He hasn't lost any. When we get to the book of Revelation, we find that there's 12,000 um, um, witnesses from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. So God knows exactly where they are. Now, the 12 tribes were scattered. The 10 northern tribes were scattered initially by the Assyrians and that's what later turned into Samaria and why there was such conflict between Jews and Samaritans. But the, the tribes were never lost. 
And I know a lot of people spend a lot of time trying to figure out, especially Hispanics in, in, in Texas and in San Antonio, trying to figure out which of the lost tribes they've descended from. And uh, they're Sephardic Jews, they decide. And uh, the problem is unless the, the ten tribes never were lost. So uh, God knows where they are. He will regather them in the book of Revelation until that time. Um, I think we'd be surprised to find out um, if we could trace everybody's ancestry all the way back to the beginning. We'd find that they're representatives all over this earth of all of the lost tribes of Israel. Um, But remember, they're scattered, not lost. So uh, just the question, Fred, is sort of a, a misunderstanding of of uh, what's happened historically. Monica wants to know, Pastor on what are the synoptic Gospels? Um, the synoptics, Monica, are, are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We know there's four Gospels. John is the other one. Uh, the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, were written around the same time, and they drew from one another. That's why there's some similarities. There are differences because there are different purposes in each of the Gospels. But the synoptics uh, are, are, are similar. Uh, they share some of the same stories. Uh, the same uh, main characters are involved in the authorship of them. Uh, only the Gospel of John is not one of the synoptics because it was written um, some, I don't know, 60 or 70 years after um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written. So uh, the synoptics are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they uh, have a cohesiveness and sort of a thematic view of Jesus' ministry. Uh, Matthew, of course, was written by Matthew Levi, the tax collector who was one of the disciples Jesus chose who became an apostle. His is the most Jewish of all of the uh, the Gospels. Uh, Mark was written by John Mark, who was a character in him, but John Mark was telling Peter's story. Uh, it's, it's, it's Peter's perspective on Jesus' ministry. That makes it very valuable. It also gives us some insight, uh, I think, Monica, into um, the personality of Peter. Short and to the point, he doesn't go off on tangents like Matthew and, and Luke does. Um, um, Mark's purpose was to show Jesus uh, as the servant of mankind. He didn't come to be served, but rather he came to serve. And of course, Luke's gospel is written to show the humanity of Jesus, uh, written by a Gentile, the only gospel written by a non-Jew. And um, um, his emphasis is different, the humanity of Jesus uh, the gift of God, the human. I'm going to be talking about that tonight in our Isaiah chapter 9 study. The gift of God to the world, not just to Jews, but to Gentiles. So those are the synoptic Gospels. Jonathan wants to know, how literally are we supposed to take Genesis? Jonathan, when you read Genesis, the simple, plain meaning is the most obvious meaning. That means we're supposed to take it uh, very literally. Very literally. Now, here's what I always say. If a passage of Scripture can be taken literally, if it makes any sense at all, then we are to take it literally. Obviously, the poetic books have a lot of things that are symbolic. Uh, The trees of the field clap their hands. We know trees don't have hands, so we know that's a symbol of something. But in the book of Genesis, If we don't take that literally, then we lose 
every essential doctrine in the New Testament church. They all fall apart. If Adam and Eve, for example, Jonathan, were not the first two people on earth, then we're all lost in our sin. We don't have a Savior because Jesus believed in Adam and Eve. He taught about Adam and Eve. He said they were the first two in the beginning. And if Jesus lied to us, then obviously he's disqualified from being God. Not only that, but if Adam and Eve weren't the first two humans, how do we come up with our sin nature? Why are we plagued with this inner desire to disobey, to to do that which opposes God? But you see, if we take Genesis literally, we know we inherited that from our federal father, Adam. If we don't take the fall literally, if we don't take, in fact, I'll go all the way to the first 11 chapters of Genesis, if we don't take those chapters literally, uh, the book of Romans becomes of no value at all. So Jonathan, God created the world in six literal days. There's no explanation that satisfies the context of the scriptures except God in six days created everything and then he rested. If we try to find anything else in there, then what we've done is we've thrown away that which God has made clear to us. So again, take it very, very literally. Um, Deborah wants to know Um, she says, it seems to me impossible to miss how how Jesus fulfilled prophecy. Why can't Jews see that? Uh, Deborah, it feels uh, impossible to you because we have the benefit of of history. Now, if you're talking about Jews who live today, the Apostle Paul says there's a veil covering their hearts. Um, Only by turning to Christ is that veil removed. It's sort of part of the the consequence, the cost of being disobedient, of rejecting Jesus when he came for his own people the first time. But it's also true, and I'm going to talk about this tonight as well. They didn't understand. Even Isaiah didn't understand what he was writing tonight. And so they didn't understand that Jesus would come twice, they looked for all of the prophecies to be fulfilled in his first advent to earth. They expected Isaiah 9, the fifth verse, talks about a time of everlasting peace, worldwide peace, where there'd be no need for weapons, no soldiers. And because Jesus didn't fulfill that, they reject him. I think a lot of Jews have forgotten by choice what Jesus said. You've heard that it was said, and then he would quote the Old Testament law. He said, but I say unto you that, that Jesus brought a new understanding to the Old Testament scriptures in fulfilling the law. And the only answer for Jewish people now is to turn to Jesus and let the Spirit of God remove that veil. And by the way, Deborah, there are a lot of Jews who've come to faith in Jesus Christ. Um, the reason most Jews can't see it is because they don't want to. 
It's like, well, you know, how could we be wrong? They don't want to stop sinning any more than Gentiles want to stop sinning. Why did the Jews in Jesus' time miss it when they saw the miracles, when they heard him teach like no one who had ever taught before? The reason is because their hearts were wicked. They didn't want to stop sinning. They didn't want their lives to be changed. They wanted a God who would serve them rather than a God they could serve. Now, the other reason I think that's very important for us to recognize Jesus uh, uh, regarding Jews, Deborah, is that it would be impossible to a Jewish mindset that God could die. When we say God gave his only son to Jew, child sacrifice is an impossible concept. And they read that, well, if you Christians are right, God sacrificed his own son. Well, he did, but he did it for us. And he did it in fulfillment of the Jewish prophecies. And for them to understand the suffering servant passages, Isaiah 50, Isaiah 53, and 54, for them to understand that is really difficult. Pray for them. Pray that their hearts would turn to Jesus and that veil would be moved. We have 30 minutes left in the program. No calls. We'd love your calls and questions. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. You're listening to The Word to Stand Up for Life. We'll be back in two minutes. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of the program, the Wednesday edition of the show, 340-9585. I was laughing because I'm looking at this first question of this half hour. And I'm thinking, well, I could go on the entire half hour for this question if people don't call. So um, I warn you in advance. Here's a question from Paul. He said, how did you get your calling to be a pastor? And then the second question is, would you take one of the programs and share your testimony? Um, uh, Paul, my testimony is available at calvarysa.com. Um, um, I, I, I wouldn't feel comfortable. I don't want to make this program about me or about even Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Um, so I wouldn't feel comfortable using, uh, this program to share the testimony. You know, there are lots of questions that I get asked that I'm able to put in bits and pieces, but if any of you want to hear, uh, my testimony or Paula's, hers is on there as well. You can go to calvaryessay.com and on the front page, uh, you'll see a link to uh, our testimony. And uh, I actually, the testimony I did on there is in two parts. One was how I came to Christ. And then the second part of it was uh, what God has done in the in the time since we've been here in San Antonio. So, uh, Paul, I, I hope that's good enough. I just really wouldn't feel comfortable taking the program uh, to share uh, my testimony. Um, how did I get my calling to be a pastor? 
Um, it's, it's kind of strange, you know, how God speaks to us. I was in a car um, all by myself uh, on the 57 freeway uh, on my way home from work. I was six months in the Lord. And uh, um, as was the case, I always had my radio on to K-Wave. Uh, it's a Calvary Chapel-owned uh, radio station in Southern California. Uh, and it's mostly teaching. And uh, I was listening one day, and it just happened to be at that time Raul Reese, uh, who has since become a friend of mine. Uh, Raul Reese was, uh, um, his program was on the air, and he was teaching out of uh, First Timothy. And he was talking about uh, the role of a pastor. And it was as if, now nothing weird happened, Paul, but it was as if Jesus was in the passenger seat of the car, sitting there with me. And when Rawl started talking about the, the role of a pastor, it was almost as if Jesus was going, hey, hey, listen to this because this is for you. And as soon as he began talking about it, I knew beyond any doubt that I was called to be a pastor. I called uh, Paula first, and she said, uh, I said, Paula, I think I'm supposed to be a pastor. I just, I couldn't explain how it happened, but, but I, I think God's speaking to my heart. I'm supposed to be a pastor. Could that be possible? She said, uh, Ronnie, call your, your sister. And so I called my sister, Christy, and she confirmed it. She, she knew about it long before. She told Paula about it. And um, uh, so I was convinced. And, you know, I never had a doubt. I didn't know what I was going to uh, do as a pastor. I didn't really even know what a pastor did. But I knew beyond any doubt that I was called to be a pastor. And at that point, Paul, that's when I really, really started digging into the Bible with everything that was in within me. Uh, it was just this instinct that I needed uh, to follow, uh, like a dog sniffing out a bone or something. I knew I needed to be in the Word, and, and, and the Lord would meet me there, and I got more and more confidence that this is what I was called to do. Uh, that was in 1991, Paul. In 1994, um, when I was at Bible college, knowing I was called to be a pastor, but not knowing where, uh, that's when the Lord spoke to my heart about uh, the people here in San Antonio, Texas. It was March 4th, 1994. I'll never forget the date. I'm all alone with the Lord on the mountain. It's cold, but the but the the, the sky, sun is in the air, or in the sky, rather. It's a beautiful day. And uh, I'm just walking and praying, and the Lord... Um, spoke to my heart again. Again, not audibly, but it, it was as profound as though it was. And he said, begin praying for the people of San Antonio, Texas. And I did that for two weeks. I prayed. It never occurred to me to ask him why. Uh, I, I, I I just wanted to be obedient. And a couple of weeks goes by, and he kind of nudged me again and said, okay, aren't you going to ask me why you're praying for the people of San Antonio? And so I said, yes, Lord, why, why do you want me to pray for him? He goes, that's where I'll be waiting for you. And that day, Paul, is the day that I knew where we were going to plant a church. We'd never been to Texas. We never wanted to go to Texas. We didn't know anybody in Texas. Uh, but we knew that Jesus was going to be here waiting for us on the day we arrived. So I finished Bible college, and I think two weeks later, we, we left on Easter Sunday, the timing and the symbolism that was really important to us. Um, we left and left everything in California behind and came to a place that we'd never been before. And are we ever thrilled that we did? So 
There's your answer, Paul. Let's go to the phones. We finally got a call. Ray on line one. Ray, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Ray, are you there? Oh, Ray got disconnected. My first phone call today and Ray got disconnected. Okay, let's go to an anonymous question. Anonymous question, rather. Why do Christians flock to celebrity pastors? It seems the only celebrity in the church should be Jesus. Could I have your thoughts? Uh, I just will amen your thoughts. Um, um, why do Christians flock to celebrity pastors? They do it for the same reason that um, we follow celebrities in every field. Uh, we do it because we're just a little bunch of sheep that bah our way to wherever feels the safest. We hear somebody on the radio. We hear somebody on television. Somebody has a bigger church than somebody else. And to us in the West, we just have sort of a mindset that that means success. And um, um, that's why we do it. Should we do it? The answer is no. Uh, We should follow Jesus to a church. Uh, He has a pastor for us. Um, And you're right. The only celebrity in churches today should be Jesus Christ. So um, anonymous, don't put your hopes ever in a man. Men, including this man, will always disappoint you. Uh, I always listen to people who come in the very first time, you know, and the Lord speaks to them, and they think I'm the greatest thing since sliced bread. Uh, And then two weeks later, two months later, sometimes two years later, I say something that offends them, and suddenly I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, Jesus is the only voice that you should hear. He'll speak through pastors. He'll speak through the teaching of his word. But Jesus is the only voice that any of us should really hear. So thank you for asking anonymous. Ray is back. Ray, thanks for calling back. You're on the air. Hi. Uh, I wanted to get your input on what your thoughts were on cremation. And I will hang up and listen on the air for your answer. Thank you, Ray. No problem. Um, cremation is perfectly acceptable. What happens to these old bodies when we're done with them doesn't matter at all. Um, and, and people say, well, well, are you sure? Well, Paula and I have both decided that we're going to be cremated. Uh, there's no glory in this old tent. So when it's over, when I'm with Jesus, when I move from this tent to a better address in heaven, um, Ray, I don't care at all what happens. Uh, I think it is obscene, the amount of money that we spend uh, during our times of grief, um, um, selling funerals and caskets and all the accompanying things is, is uh, I mean, I was a car dealer before I got saved. It's, it's the same thing. And salespeople take advantage of people who are hurting. And uh, I've just watched people spend money unnecessarily because we're superstitious about death. So uh, whatever the cheapest way we can do it, and Paul and I have already decided, as I said, that we're going to be cremated. And um, uh, again, what happens to this old body um, really, really doesn't have um, any bearing at all on where we are with Jesus. We won't care at all. So I'm all for getting rid of all of the superstition regarding death uh, if we Christians really believe that we're going to be with Jesus when we die, and I know we do, well, then we ought to be glad to shed these old bodies. And uh, we started out as dust, 
um, we might as well be dust again uh, in the form of ashes. And there's there's nothing biblically that, that would suggest that that's not okay with the Lord. So, Ray, thank you for that. I hope, uh, hope that clears things up. Amy wants to know, what does it mean that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath? Amy, you're talking about Mark chapter 2, verse 27. It's in another gospel as well. But um, you, you remember that Jesus, when um, he was being sort of perused by the, the religious leaders, they were looking for violations of the Sabbath. That, to the, to the Jew, was the worst possible sin, to violate the Sabbath day. And the Sabbath was a day where you could do some stuff, but you couldn't do other stuff. And and uh, e- even if what you were trying to do was to help somebody, or in Jesus' case, to heal somebody, um, they said, no, you can't do that because that's working on the Sabbath. Um, and Jesus, of course, who was the Lord of the Sabbath, um, straightened him out. He said, don't you understand that the Sabbath, remember that's rest, was made for man. It's a gift from God, that rest. It's not something that we're to approach legalistically. It's not something that we're to approach, uh, you know, in a, a loophole sort of way, trying to figure out what I can do and what I can get away with and still be okay with God. Jesus was simply saying that the Sabbath was a gift. Now, uh, starting next, in fact, this Friday, I think, I'm in Hebrews chapter 4. And um, Hebrews chapter 4 is all about the Sabbath rest and, and the, 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 the truth that the Sabbath pointed to Jesus, that he is our Sabbath rest. So that was just the picture, Amy, that Jesus was trying to illustrate when he said uh, to the religious leaders, the Sabbath wasn't something that man has to do. Sabbath was a rest provided that man got to participate in. You know, they were always trying to trap Jesus on the Sabbath to see if he would remember the, the man with the shriveled hand. They put him right in front of Jesus when he came in on the Sabbath uh, into the synagogue. and and Because uh, they knew Jesus couldn't help himself. He was going to heal the man's shriveled hand. And they would consider that a work. Jesus knew they were trying to trap him. And Jesus knew that that was the reason that they were plotting his death. Truth is, Jesus didn't care. I'm going to talk about another Sabbath observance this Sunday in the Gospel of Luke, our our communion Sunday here at Calvary Chapel. So, man doesn't strive to keep the Sabbath. The Sabbath was given so that man didn't have to strive. Amy, I hope that makes sense to you, because if it does, that's a really freedom. As you know, probably, Amy, there are a lot of people who think that the Sabbath day, Saturday, the seventh day, is the day that we should be worshiping the Lord because that's what the Jews did. That's what the law says. Um, But Jesus fulfilled, gloriously fulfilled, the Sabbath law. And he's the reason that now we can rest from our own works and rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Dan wants to know. My question is about the rapture. Is that what Jesus was talking about in Matthew twenty four, verse forty? 
Now, Matthew 24, verse 40, you see all of it discourse. And this is the passage of Scripture where it says, um, two men were working in the field, one was taken and one was left. Now, I understand why that sounds like the rapture, Dan. But um, the rapture is nowhere spoken about in the New Testament. We have one hint in John chapter 14, not in the New Testament, I mean in the Gospel accounts. We have one hint of it in John chapter 14, but the rapture, according to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, is a mystery, something that was uh, not revealed up until the time it was revealed to the Apostle Paul, and he revealed it to us uh, in the pages of Scripture. Paul got to reveal four separate mysteries, um, and so in the Olivet Discourse, we're talking about that time that we call the Great Tribulation. Jesus was going down the corridor of time and space. Now, because he was answering the questions of his own disciples, when you piece together Luke 21, Mark 13, and Matthew 24 and 25, you get the questions that were asked and the answers that were given to the different questions. So there's a short-term fulfillment. Jesus said, when you see the armies surrounding uh, the city of Jerusalem, then take off, run, don't delay, pray that it's not snowing, or pray that it, you're not a pregnant woman trying to get away. Why? Because that means judgment was in, imminent. And we know that in 70 A.D., that's exactly what happened. The Roman general Titus um, completely and utterly devastated the city of Jerusalem and killed nearly everybody who was there. Uh, some Jews, remembering what Jesus said, fled, and they fled to safety. So uh, that's a short-term fulfillment. The long-term fulfillment goes in that period of time at the end of the age we call the Great Tribulation, where for seven years... Uh, the Antichrist will 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 rule and reign, um, and then then when he demands at the midpoint of the great tribulation to be worshipped, the Jews will rebel, and he'll chase them off. They'll hide in in Jordan, the rock city of Petra. God will preserve them, but um, the great tribulation it will come upon everybody. Who lives on the earth because everybody who lives on the earth during that time will have rejected Jesus Christ. We will be gone. And when he says one will be taken, that's taken in judgment, and the other will be left. Yeah, what we left, he will be preserved. He'll be that Jew that goes into the rock city of Petra in, in modern day Jordan. So, Dan, the, the best way to understand uh, when you're studying the Olivet Discourse is that this is an entirely and exclusively Jewish teaching. It has nothing to do with you and me. We will all be gone during that time. So thank you very, very much. 340-9585. Let's go to a question from Andrew. Uh, he says, Pastor on Hebrews 12 says that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Does that mean that people we loved are watching us from heaven? Uh, Andrew, sometimes, in fact, too often, it's misunderstood to to mean that. Oh, yeah, people in heaven are watching us. Hebrews 12 says that we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Um, but they're not witnesses of us. They're witnesses to us. Now, this Greek word is marturos. It's the word we get our English word martyr from. And what he's saying is that they who are in heaven, now remember, we're talking about all of the people specifically who are listed in Hebrews chapter 11. We call that the Hall of Fame of Faith. 
they are heroes, people that that God sets out as as faith heroes uh, to encourage us to trust God by faith. And what he's saying is that they are witnesses to us of the faithfulness of God. They're not witnesses of us. They're not witnessing um, um, or watching out for us. These are men and women who gave everything they had, having not yet received the promises of God, but their faith persevered to the end. And they held on to that which God promised when it would seem to us impossible to believe. I mean, we're talking about Isaiah uh, in some of these questions today. Isaiah, uh, he would he would serve in his ministry of prophecy for well over 50 years. And nobody would listen. And Isaiah eventually will be put in the middle of a hollowed out log and cut in half on the orders of the wicked king Manasseh. Now, it would be impossible for him to believe that this is what the prophecies would indicate, but he held on to the end. Jeremiah is another prophet with a ministry for over 40 years, and he didn't convert anybody. He saw horrible judgment. His heart was broken repeatedly. Ezekiel was in the captivity to Babylon, and yet they persevered. So they are witnesses to us of the faithfulness of God. Again, they're not witnesses of us. There's nobody in heaven. I promise you this. Angels look down because they marvel sort of at the things of grace. But there's nobody in heaven that we know or love who's spending one second of one day thinking about you or me. Everybody in heaven is enthralled with the beauty of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Everybody in heaven is staring at that face shining like the sun in all of its brilliance. They don't have an instant to turn away to look at us. By the way, the Bible says there'll be no more pain, no more sorrow in heaven, no more tears. If we get to heaven and had to look at things going on on earth with the people that we love, or if we had to think about people on earth that are going to hell, or especially during the Great Tribulation, can you imagine seeing all of the pain left here on the earth? No, our focus will be on our Lamb. You know, Andrew, this isn't what you asked, but I always think about that moment when I want to be like Thomas and see his hands and his side pierced. The, the holes in his feet because he'll still carry them and at that moment I believe we will know for the very first time just how much he really loves us thank you for the question Andrew let's go to Jeff on line one from San Antonio Jeff thanks for calling you're on the air good afternoon Pastor Ron I was calling to ask you about Psalm 139.15 which says my bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret when I was formed in the depths of the earth. My question is, why why was I made in secret, and where are the depths of the earth? Good question, Jeff. I love Psalm 139. Um, um, the, the secret places are, refers there. Remember, this is a poetic book. 
and the secret places are referring there to, to, to the things that we can't know and the things that we can't see. For example, the best example that, that the Bible gives us is Job. Uh, he is one human who got to see some of those secret things. Uh, and when he did, he was completely shut up. So um, uh, he's talking about things above. Um, I love Psalm 29 where, where it says that God is enthroned above the flood. The idea is above the flood of judgment, above the things that happen here on earth. Well, the secret places are, are the, the secret counsels of God where he's the one who directs our steps. He's the one who forms our, our hearts and our thoughts. And um, uh, they're, they're mysteries to us. We don't understand. When it talks about descending to the lower parts of the earth, that's simply a reference to descending to where the earth is. The secret places are above, the earth is below. So that's the descent that's being described in Psalm 139. I can promise everybody in the audience, Jeff, if, if you're feeling a little discouraged, if you're needing a little bit of hope, uh, Psalm 139 will absolutely thrill you and, and and encourage you. Thank you, Jeff. I appreciate the question. Let's go to Jimmy calling from San Antonio. Jimmy, thanks for holding. You're on the air. Um, first Peter, uh, verse 3. Uh, it says about uh, wives obey your husbands. And, 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 uh, and then it says, and if the husbands don't believe in uh, and God, they'll see the wives believe in God and they'll come to the Lord. Something like that. Those are What's my the question? Okay, Peter wrote that, right? Well, what is he? Is he, is he telling the wives to obey their husbands? Um, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, because, because there's men, there were men, men in those days that didn't believe in God, right? Well, there's there's been men who didn't believe in God through through the. But remember, Peter's writing to Christians, so the context he's writing to uh, Christians. If you were to write a letter to to me and to Calvary Chapel of San Antonio, you'd be writing to Christians. You wouldn't send the same letter to an Elks Lodge or 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 a social club somewhere. So Peter's writing to believers. He's also addressing situations that are happening in the early church world. So what he's saying is, look, don't be out of control. Be obedient to your husbands. Paul writes the same thing in Ephesians chapter 5. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. So uh, what he's saying is, yeah, submit to your husbands. Do it for the sake of your testimony. And and um, Jimmy, we're running out of time here. We're inside a minute. This is the passage of Scripture that literally saved my life because... This is where the Lord took Paula when she was praying for me for those 13 years or for most of those 13 years. This is what he kept saying to her. This is your part. Submit to your husbands. Now, if I asked Paula to do something that's ungodly, she certainly wouldn't do that uh, as unto the Lord. But uh, the idea is make your husband who isn't a believer the object of your ministry evangelizing. Hey, thanks for the call, Jimmy. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. You've been listening to the Word of Santa for Life. Remember, Paula will be live in studio on the program tomorrow. Lord willing, I'll be back at 4 o'clock on AM 630, The Word. See you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.